if you're looking for then somebody out of Amsterdam or Berlin or Zurich that has had European-wide success, which is, I'm sure, the lens that U.S. firms are looking at Europe with, those people are few and far between. We are back with Season 7 of Associated, the fifth part of our documentary-style series on the influx of U.S. capital into the European tech ecosystem. If you have yet to listen to the four podcasts that precede this on topics such as how European tech became so hot to competition in areas of collaboration, please do, as every episode builds on each other. This is Danielle here, coming to you live from Berlin. This episode is focused squarely on hiring, another topic we discussed with both the founders and VCs we talked to. This was important to us because, potentially like the rest of you, we have been reading articles and tweets over the last couple of years noting the lack of applicable VC and tech talent in Europe. We'll be talking about VC tech talent first. There was a somewhat controversial CNBC article written in December 2021 in which multiple sources confirmed, quote, some of America's most successful venture capital firms have been finding it difficult to recruit people to lead their new European outposts. And that, quote, the profile of VC that many of the U.S. funds like is less commonly found within the European space. A multitude of European funders and other stakeholders didn't agree with the idea that there was not enough talent who fit the VC partner roles on offer. Looking at the numbers, the Europeans seem to have a point. European offices are more geographically dispersed with larger partnerships than their U.S. counterparts, with European funds being twice as likely at 38% than their U.S. counterparts to have a second office. 51% of those second offices for European funds are outside of Europe. And U.S. funds on average having three general partners, as opposed to European funds who on average have more than four. So does Europe already have all the talent it needs in venture, specifically at the partner level, which is where we'll be focusing? Also, what makes up the standard profile anyway? Brianne Burke from Keen Venture Partners. If U.S. VCs are coming to Europe and looking for VC talent, and they're using that same sort of absolute marker for success of, okay, I want somebody who's, you know, done 20 big exits, then it's hard. Europe is just a younger ecosystem. So in that numbers game, there aren't as many heavy hitter, big outcome investors as there are in the U.S. just purely because we need a little more time to get there. I also think it's a gross generalization, but I think there's fewer sort of like Twitter personality VCs within the EU. So yeah, maybe that, you know, adds up to a little bit of it. I also think something you said earlier about the U.S. funds coming over. And I think one of the things that makes it a little difficult to get your bearings is that with exception of a few, there's not necessarily that many brands that have built their brand successfully or are known as a brand for just being very pan-European players. So they do tend to be known by, oh, they're great at XYZ or they're wonderful in this market or they're great for this type of deal. And I think generally speaking, that's a little less true in the US. So I think also perhaps if you're looking for then somebody out of Amsterdam or Berlin or Zurich that has had European-wide success, which is, I'm sure, the lens that U.S. firms are looking at Europe with, those people are few and far between. That said, I think that those people that have been wildly successful in their markets, in their current firms, have been wildly successful for a reason. So I think you know, maybe changing this definition of what 
talented looks like is good because the people that you're bringing in or the person you're looking for in your mind might not actually be as good at spotting this young European talent. So a high-level summary is that U.S. funds are typically looking for prospective partners who have invested for years across Europe with successful track records on those investments and who have also had their own brand. Harry Briggs, a partner at Elmer's Ventures, thinks that it's easier said than done. Meeting the U.S. standard of VC partner may be hard to do. The European ecosystem was so small until recently. Again, when I came in 2009, you could probably get together all of the young VCs. We used to have events of the European young VC. I can't remember what it was called, ECB something or something. Pretty much like the entire group was maybe a hundred people and you could all fit in a restaurant. And now that's probably thousands and just the partners of VC funds would be in the hundreds. But, but the issue is that if you're trying to find a, a partner to join your fund that has, you know, come up through the VC ecosystem and has several years of experience, you're looking at a cohort of people that was very tiny until recently. And by the way, because European Merch has been a great place to be and I've been very fortunate to have been in it, quite a lot of those people will have already done extremely well. Try and recruit someone out of Axel, uh, the fund that has UiPath in it and SNCC in it and all these Decacorn companies, they'd be walking away from hundreds of millions of carry. It's insane. Your universe of people with, say, seven years of experience that are in venture but are not yet like colossally rich, is not that big. Funny that we heard in many of our interviews reference to this same dinner that used to happen in Europe. It underlines Harry's point that it is difficult to find someone who has been in Europe for a while and is not already at a senior level in VC or significantly well off. He mentions carry or carried interest, which is the percentage, which is set internally, of the fund's profit that partners receive when the fund's portfolio does financially well. Here's Hussein Kanji of Hawks Ventures clarifying another requirement of the standard profile a partner would need, connections. I look at the amount of like venture folks who are in Europe who are really well-trained, who can play and compete at that level, because all of these folks need at least one partner to, to set up the operation. So unless they're transplanting someone from the U.S., who then probably doesn't have all the European relationships from day one, you really need someone who's ideally a perfect mix of someone who's been in the U.S. for a number of years or worked with them for a number of years, and then there's a bunch of European relationships. They're, they're not that many folks. Anna Otteson of Trellis Road adds another layer of complexity, as it is not just the relationships a partner needs to hit the ground running with, but also the cultural cues. Having your ear to the ground in some sense is necessary. And obviously the local element plays a big part in that, both from, from for practical reasons, but also for sort of serendipity that you won't learn about your neighbor building a super cool company if you're never around. And I think definitely it's a sort of, I, I think if you think that those relationships are important as a U.S. investor relocating to Europe or opening a European office, obviously you have two routes. Either you start building that on your own or you hire someone who already have that uh, access at least to that network. And obviously I guess hiring is a much faster uh, route. And also, I, I think it comes back to some of the cultural elements that you realize that there are some of these just like cultural clues that uh, irrespective of where you move, it's just much, much harder to get a sense for. It might be hard to say like, okay, 
who are the actually like most interesting founders in a certain city if you don't understand really the sort of social landscape in which those founders work and operate. So it is starting to feel like this archetype is as difficult as finding a unicorn. So far, we have tallied someone with X years of equivalent experience, i.e. a consultant or a banker, with a substantial track record, has U.S. connections, a great European network, and has also been a pan-European success with cultural knowledge. To that end, Zoe Chambers, a partner at Frontline Ventures with surprise guest Francesca, even states that some who fit this profile have achieved demigod status. I wasn't expecting this kind of weird demigod status that some of the investors in the ecosystem have. And why do you think they've reached demigod status? I think because people, and when I say people, like the outsiders, love the idea that you take what is, you know, perceptibly a bet early on into another set of people doing something which is quite often creating the future, which you didn't yet know was going to be possible, whether that's ordering a taxi to your door or in food to your door, et cetera. Um, but I'm talking from like the consumer perspective here. And then I also date, I think this shock factor comes from hyper growth, that exponential growth that you just don't see in any other walks of life. And all of those things that come together, which say, when you put one pound in, how on earth did you get a hundred pounds out for that is, is like genuinely impressive. And then there's obviously the divisive discussion about whether that's skill or luck. But I think that's why some of those people who time and again have made these amazing investments are, are kind of seen in this way. So, okay. It seems as if the CNBC article may have some teeth to it. Europe does not yet have a large supply of available demigods who took all the boxes we laid out previously. But I think that is only if Europe decides that it wants to live and hire by the U.S. standards. Do they? Zoe again. Yeah, I think it was interesting to see some of the more, the ones that have been in the press about the U.S. fund that come here have quite obviously poached from just a few well-known names. And I, I, I totally get why they do that. That feels like the diligence is done for you. But of course, my sense is that there's a vast number of hugely talented investors in Europe. And so perhaps that was a weak recruitment process. Who knows? Perhaps I'm completely missing a trick. And, and I say this, by the way, also recognizing that all of those investors who become the head honcho of those relevant US funds are amazing. But I remember Sapphire hiring Annalise from Atomico and thinking, oh my God, they've smashed it. I remember meeting her when she was an associate at Atomico and thinking she's amazing. And they obviously thought the same. And then her trajectory has been stellar. And isn't that great that they've made that type of a, a bet? But look, all of the other ones will totally pay off. I just think that as long as it doesn't come from a place of naivety, that there's only like three funds that have produced interesting investors because that just repeats exactly the issue that we've spent like years trying to get out of anyway, which is that even to get into VC, you have to be a consultant or an investment banker. And let's not repeat that cycle. Let's remember that great people can be in different places. So her answer is flat out, no. Europe does not want to conform to those US standards. Due to the data of La Famiglia continues this thread pointedly stating that if Europe is so convinced we have great tech talent, why wouldn't we also have great VC talent? I'm going to say the same thing that I say to all the 
male VC partners that I've had conversations with about their struggles to find amazing diverse talent for their funds is you just need to look harder. The talent is here and you might need to change the way you define talent based on like the lens that you've applied in the US, which might be shaped by different variables. You might need to look at those variables again and ask, are they the same? Do they diverge in terms of the way that you look at European talent and the way that you look at the European opportunity? But I think again, coming back to the first principle thinking, like the funds are here because they think there's great companies and there's great returns to be made. If we just go with that thinking for a while, I don't see any reason for why that type of talent should be exclusively available on the founder side and not available on the investor side. Okay. So some US VCs have taken the same playbook that they've used to hire in the US to Europe. The laundry list of requirements seem never ending for the standard US partner profile. And because of one thing or another, they are already well off, already have a job, move industries, etc. Many junior VCs who would fit that profile are off the market now, leaving new US funds with an intimate size interview pool given their filters. We are simultaneously hearing hiring needs to happen and there is great talent in Europe. So the natural next step is to take off the filters and figure out the disconnect, expand the pool, and hopefully make it more diverse while we're at it. James Wise at Balderton here. That number of people in Europe is expanding. There are more $10 billion, $50 billion, $100 billion, not quite there yet, but we're getting there. Success stories. And so people who've had those experiences and insights and network and, and therefore might be great investors, that number is increasing as well. So fundamentally, that talent base is growing. And then also, I think people yeah, have to be more open to the kinds of backgrounds of people that they're looking for when they build that partnership. So instead of conforming to standards placed on the European tech market by other geographical areas, the solution is to change the definition of who can be partner. And there are three paths we are seeing funds use to get out of this talent conundrum. One is via internal hiring. Jan Mitschaika here on what HV recently did. So on the one hand, we have the talent shortage within European VC. And for example, at HV, we just announced promotions today. Zuzi Maya was to principal, Luisa to investment manager, Yanis to investment manager. And I think these are more junior people who are taking their steps. Judith provides her perspective on what is happening at La Familia. I would always look at this from the perspective of you want to invest into something that you're building in the future and you want to also grow a team and you want to grow an investor base. We very strongly at La Familia believe in growing talent in-house and helping them grow along the stages of, of becoming a great investor. And so I would always tend to favor that perspective. I'm very much a, a lover of growth mindset by Carol Dweck. The second path we are seeing is via speculative hiring, where funds are promoting, quote, riskier talent, hoping that they rise to the occasion. Riskier only because they don't yet have the number of years under their belt that would be standard of a person in their position. This standard is arbitrary, of course. Paul built on this point, saying that experience may be overweighted. And there's also like a slightly cynical side to my view of venture capital, which is I think people do overweight experience a bit. I know that like it's an apprentice business and there's a lot of truth to that. But I also know that there's lots of things I'm not going to see just because I grew up in a certain generation and that other people are going to see differently. So I think it's really important that you have a whole range of experiences, backgrounds, skill set, times in employment, consumer interests on, on your team. So I think it's a feature that we're having to go a little bit earlier and people even mess up. I haven't been investing that long. So I think, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a different talent pool. It doesn't make us nervous. I think we're actually quite excited that it's forcing us to take some bets a bit earlier and 
so far, it seems like that's going to work out. The third path is hiring operators into VC. James again. Well, the good news is, and what's changing is the number of people who come from operator backgrounds has increased in venture. I think they bring a lot to the table. And if you look at our partnership, we try and balance it between entrepreneurs, operators, and venture capitalists, career venture capitalists, the three, three areas we believe every good partnership has expertise in. And uh, we've always tried to do that historically. So certainly we think operators and entrepreneurs who, who want to go into venture over time could, can be great VCs. Though hiring operators is not as taboo as it once was, it is still sometimes seen as untraditional and doesn't negate prospective hirers from needing investing experience. Luckily, building a track record is not as hard as it was before. James follows up. The number of successes is increasing exponentially. And so the ability to build a track record is easier now. Whether that be as a scout or an angel or working in an accelerator or a seed fund, you can get exposure to many great businesses, uh, which honestly, five years ago, was much more difficult. I was very fortunate that some of the early deals I worked on turned out to be successful. It took many years to see that. Last year, I was fortunate to take one business public on the NASDAQ as board member and investor, another business in a, in a multi-billion dollar M&A transaction and, and other businesses in, in similarly you know, good M&A transactions. On average, I've been involved in those businesses for about six or seven years. I now think that if you start an venture today, you probably do have the chance of seeing successes slightly earlier, which means that hopefully there'll be more people who can build a track record in a, in a more reasonable time period. So these three paths are just some of the ways we are seeing funds continue to hire great teams in Europe, but it doesn't mean hiring is seamless. Partners, especially, sometimes take significant time to recruit, and no one can plan for external factors of your recruitment changing. An example is COVID or the impending market downturn. What are some ways of coping with these obstacles? Here is how Paul at Lightspeed bootstrapped their way into a fully fledged team in Europe. There's been two dimensions. One is doing it a bit more deals myself than I would normally do, which is fine because I came in with a clean slate. So you can be a bit, you can run a bit hot your first year. So that, that was intentional. We made that decision. And as we build up the team, more of those deals will get done by the team. So that I think is organic. And the other nice thing is because we are investing out of one fund, there's no reason why my partners can't lead deals in Europe. They can hunt deals in Europe. They can lead deals in Europe. And the way that we operate is very much one light speed. I might lead the deal up at a certain point and it turns out what actually this happened recently with the deal. I think they liked me, but there was a partner that they liked a bit more. They felt like their experience was a bit better and I agreed with them. And so that she became the lead on the deal. and. Got, it's a perfect fit. And so I think we're, we have no ego around those things. So I think that's helped us really grow quickly and land in Europe as I think if we look back at over the last kind of 12 months, I, I think life's people will be one of the most active early stage investors in Europe, which most of our deals aren't public yet, but I think that's a testament to how, how involved the U S team has been. And here is Harry speaking to the structures they chose when forming Omer's European arm and how they are actively overcoming the obstacles they faced whilst hiring during COVID. Jambu obviously built Uber and Uber Eats in multiple um, countries, particularly, by the way, Eastern Europe. He has a lot of experience in Middle East and Africa, likewise. Jambu was another managing partner at Omer's venture arm in Europe. I think that the rest of the team is probably a bit more UK-centric than I would have liked. In an ideal world, they're all absolutely fantastic. And thank goodness we're able to travel again. This team has probably mostly come together in the, the, the pandemic world. So the geography hasn't mattered so much, but 
my goodness, we've missed it in that it, it's tangibly different spending a couple of days in Paris or Stockholm or Berlin compared to doing the odd Zoom call like we're on right now. So yes, look, I, th I think we probably would have liked to have had more, more people from who knows, Eastern Europe or, or Germany or France or the Nordics, Benelux in the team. And we certainly interviewed a lot of people with those characteristics. I, but at the same time, we, we're, we're a small team that I think are doing an okay job of particularly covering, probably covering Northern Europe a lot better than Southern Europe today, to date, but again, hoping to resolve that. So like most funds, they are a work in progress in terms of striking the right hiring to cover to balance. Lastly, I want to share a suggestion from Jan on how to conduct due diligence on a specific investor at a fund, which could help funds get to an answer faster on a potential hire. Yes, do reference calls, but be specific. Look at the companies in that person's portfolio that would be in the middle quartile in terms of traction and follow-on funding. And so I'd always urge all founders to do the necessary due diligence, the ref calls on the fund, but especially the individual they're, they're working with to figure out. There was a good um, analogy. If you think about, let's say, Francesco Artunde, your portfolio, you probably have the top third. They're happy. Everything's going well, raised follow on, da, 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 da. All good. You have the bottom. They're probably unhappy because didn't really go anywhere. It's probably okay. I think the interesting ref calls as a founder, I would always suggest talk to the companies where everything took a little bit longer, was a little bit difficult. Maybe there were internal follow-on rounds of structuring, founders leaving, a bit of drama um, to figure out how the investor and how she or, he or she performed in that context. So hopefully the shifted perspective of how to hire in Europe alongside the ways to troubleshoot for some of the things you cannot control when hiring will get both existing European funds and incoming U.S. VC funds their optimal teams. But VCs being at their talent peak doesn't matter if there are not strong, well-staffed startups to invest in. So what about recruitment in the European startup ecosystem more broadly? Christian Raber, a serial entrepreneur and the CEO currently of Pitch, who is raised from Sequoia, Thrive, Tiger, Slack, and more, actually doesn't think that we have a talent shortage at all. I think there is a, there's not really a talent shortage. There's more like aggressive competition because everyone was able to raise larger and larger rounds. A lot of people get amazing offers. They just couldn't resist and it led to a war of talent and a lot of people started job hopping and join a startup. Then a year later, after your first year of vesting, you decide to start the, to join the next company and next company. And it made it really hard to both attract talent with reasonable offers as well as retain talent over time. I have a little bit of a controversial perspective on this when it comes to salaries in general, because I think we as an industry have to become we have to be really careful that we don't become yet another like banking industry where all of us get like completely unreasonable salaries that just don't make sense at all. And honestly, most of us investors, founders, but also startup employees are probably heavily overpaid. Like we don't need that amount of money to, to live most of the times. And I think when you join a startup, you should over-optimize for ownership in a business. So you financially participate in the success of a business instead of your salary. And I think that's 
I think it's a very sad development because I think that has led to incredibly high rents in, in most city centers or unaffordable rents, not even high rents, just completely unreasonable rents because everyone can just afford any kind of like rent. And I think the same thing that happened to San Francisco is now happening to London and Berlin and Munich and it's, it's happening everywhere. And I, I get it. And I know also as a CEO, it's, a, it's like easy to say, like everyone should earn less, but I, for example, don't pay myself a salary for exactly that reason. Cause I feel like I, I shouldn't take money out of a business that's not profitable yet. I'm of course in a different position from a financial perspective. So I don't expect anyone to make that decision. But I think if you join a company or if you see seed stage companies where everyone earns more than a hundred thousand a year, I'm like, this is not a startup anymore. This is like a financial project. You, you just take huge amount of capital, uh, spend it on people and you shorten the, or you reduce the chances of success to make the business thrive. And that's, yeah, it's a, I don't know. I don't have a good suggestion for how to influence that long-term, but I hope this market correction now actually makes a lot of people realize that those salaries we pay in startups, all startups are very high unreasonably high. Christian notes that instead of participating in the talent war on wages, they at Pitch decided to compete on something more intangible, company culture, to win over prospective employees. From a strategic perspective, what we have done at Pitch is we've really heavily invested into building an amazing company culture. We've tried our very best in supporting our employees by creating a very transparent, autonomous culture where Everyone can thrive and everyone can receive very honest and friendly, supportive feedback and, and help. I'm super proud that we have a five-star rating on Glassdoor, for example. And that, that was a strategic decision we've made as a founding team. If I were to boil down Christian's thoughts, it would all come back to perspective. Make your startup an attractive place to work. A recent KPMG study states the market overall has seen a 30% increase in wages. And a local study focused on business leaders found that 55% of them feel like they're paying 25% more in salaries. So the war is continuing. But by investing time and money into intangible things that you can prove prospective employees will care about, things like benefit packages, PTO, or making your startup a place of mentorship, make your startup a great place to be from. Okay, we've heard a lot this episode. And too long, don't read. Hiring is a complex and customized animal. Though it is specific, depending on organization and geography, among other things in VC, there are overlaps in terms of end goals, which is to find fantastic teams we can support whose businesses help us in our fiduciary duty to go above and beyond to return the fund we work for. So though there are different playbooks for success, I'd argue we are too early in the European tech ecosystem journey to know if and or which combinations of non-standard hiring practices will get us to our goal. But if there's one thing VCs know how to do well, it's take calculated risks. So why not take them internally as well? We can and should be treating building teams like building early products. As long as all parties consent to being part of the MVP or minimum viable product, we should be testing every new and existing process and procedure and questioning every previous standard. Whatever gets us to success becomes the new playbook. That's a wrap on episode five. Thank you for listening and join us in a couple of weeks for our second to last episode.
And in the meantime, please share this episode far and wide. Feel free to message us on Twitter or at our email associated.podcast at gmail.com with any feedback. Excited to hear from you and get as many to be part of the discussion as possible. 